Hello and welcome after a short summer break to Brain Food for General Counsel. My name's Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at Pinsent Masons. The coronavirus crisis has put one industry firmly in the spotlight, life sciences. The world has paid forensic attention to its efforts in vaccine research, symptom treatment and medical equipment manufacture and the industry has risen to the challenge. One of the reasons for that is that companies who would otherwise be fierce competitors have worked closely together in research, manufacture and distribution. Governments, in fact, have temporarily paused industrial and competition regulation to allow this to happen. And industry figures have relished the chance to work together, describing cooperation on a scale and at a pace not seen before. So we're going to take a look at this rare cooperation to see, are there lessons that can be learned for more normal times, should we ever experience them? How does it come about? How does it work? What are the benefits? Companies are reassessing their strategies right now and their priorities in light of major challenges, not just COVID-19, but climate change and in the UK and Europe, Brexit. Thinking of new ways of working and new perspectives on old issues like competition might help to find a path through an uncertain future. We'll be hearing from Nicole Jadeja, a life sciences expert at Vincent Masons, and from business strategy academic Jonathan Baker. But first, we'll hear from David Rosenberg, former vice president for IP policy at GlaxoSmithKline, and now a consultant to pharmaceutical trade bodies. He says that pharma has long been collaborative, but we're seeing this now on a new scale. There has always been a huge amount of collaboration in the pharma sector, um, largely, I think, between big pharma and smaller pharmaceutical companies. And by smaller pharmaceutical companies, I include small biotechs, universities, I include charities. There has been a huge amount of collaboration in that area, particularly in anything biotechnological. Uh, Vaccines, I think there has always been collaboration, at least in terms of cross-licensing, rather than necessarily directly scientists working together. So I think... The context is this is an industry that has had a large amount of collaboration for many years. I think we've seen two things. I think we have seen more collaboration between big pharma companies. The one I'm thinking of in particular is the one between um, the vaccine work being done in collaboration between GSK and Sanofi, um, where, as I understand it, Sanofi is doing the antibody side of the work um, and GSK is working with Sanofi on the adjuvant that will be used in that vaccine if it ever comes to be used. Now, the reason that's important is because the adjuvant technology um, is extraordinarily commercially valuable to GSK. It is not something they will give up lightly. Um, And I think a partnership in this area is probably unprecedented. The pharma industry is a good case study because, frankly, if you can manage to work with competitors here, you can do it anywhere. It's a truly international industry governed by a latticework of stringent industrial regulations as well as the usual competition laws. As Nicole Jadeja of Pinsent Masons tells us, it's extremely complex and governments had to make some changes before cooperation on this scale could occur. I mean, when you're developing a medicine, you're very often developing it for a global market. So you've got global supply chains. Very often the particular 
ingredients, if you like, or the active ingredients which go into a a product come from various places around the globe. You've often got scientists working in different places. And then ultimately, of course, once you've once you've found a vaccine which works, you've then got the challenge of manufacturing it on the scale that's going to be required, especially in this scenario, to meet global demand. And very often manufacturing is undertaken in different parts of the world. And then, of course, you know, once you've overcome the challenge of developing a vaccine, you've met the challenge of being able to manufacture it on the scale that will be required. You've then, of course, got the challenge of global supply and meeting global demand. So yes, I mean, the life sciences, pharmaceutical industry is by its nature global. Um, and there are all the challenges that go that go that go with that industry's working hard, it's collaborating like never before. That's not new, but various things have been put in place to enable that to happen more if more effectively. There's been a lot of changes introduced central to, to the issue and what has actually really enabled some of the collaborations is the um, competition authorities approach to ag agreements and um, collaborations between what would normally be seen as competitors. So there have, for example, um, the Commission has reintroduced the ability to issue comfort letters. So it's been able to give comfort to companies that are looking to collaborate in a particular way as to whether or not the arrangement or the agreement that they're entering into would um, sort of be in breach of competition law. We've seen that really effectively. I think perhaps one of the first comfort letters might have been the first comfort letter that was introduced was given to Medicines for Europe, who were working on um, a project with industry to look at the demand and supply of ICU equipment and to enable companies to participate in that way. I think the level of engagement between industry and those authorities, I mean, it was always there, but it has increased and it's being encouraged. And it's through those active discussions that we've been able to, to look to some of the very pragmatic and practical solutions that, that are coming out of the crisis. So how has this new cooperation actually worked? David helps us to understand the kind of strategic changes you have to make to how you think about activity, resourcing and your fundamental aims if you're going to engage in this way with competitors, regulators and governments. I think what we have probably seen due to the pandemic is that companies are entering collaborations that are far less due diligence based in the sense that they are entering collaborations earlier in the process without necessarily doing the sort of work and doing the sort of agreements to see scientific and commercial viability. You know, if there is a chance of working with partner X to get a vaccine, I think companies are more likely to be doing that than they would in more normal times. Um, they will take on riskier work um, and they will take on work that is less likely to be commercially successful in the sense of making profit as opposed to making a vaccine. Companies are w willing to undertake scientifically and commercially riskier uh, collaborations than they would in more normal times. If, if, if their normal risk profile is, um, it's, it's a matrix of different things, it's likelihood of success in terms of 
uh, efficacy, its life, likelihood of success in terms of safety, its likelihood of success in terms of commercial benefit at the end of the day. And if, if ordinarily a company had a, a risk tolerance of, let's say, we'll call it five, uh, we, won't, we won't enter into a collaboration if these various factors give us a figure of five. Um, I think because of the importance of getting a vaccine or a therapeutic, they are entering into um, the collaboration if the risk, if that number is two. Life sciences is still an enormous business, though, and each of these companies with shareholders, stakeholders and reporting obligations has assets that they have a duty to protect for the long term. So protecting themselves while cooperating is something they still have to think about, as Nicole, then David, explain. They're going to have to think about IP issues, who owns the IP, who controls the IP, who makes various decisions in respect of the IP. There's going to be issues around the sharing of data. Again, not an, a new issue and one we're increasingly seeing having to be tackled by the industry as it embraces the power of data. If I was a big pharma company involved um, and one of my key commercial assets, and I mean key for the company outside uh, the COVID crisis, I would still be very wary of giving that away. I would want to be able to share it in the most controlled way possible. If you say, you know, I've got a crown jewel as opposed to I've got a piece of costume jewellery, neither of which I would normally be prepared to share openly or be normally I would be reluctant to share openly. I think you will see more sharing of the costume jewellery now in the COVID crisis, but there's still an enormous uh, hesitancy about sharing the crown jewels in a way that they those crown jewels can be used post-COVID as competitive assets of people who will become competitors post-COVID. This kind of cooperation changes your organisation's focus towards solving a global health crisis and away from the usual strategic aims like profit and successful clinical outcomes. This changes the very basis for acting and the fundamental nature of decision-making, says David, though he thinks this is a crisis-specific response and it can't last. There's certainly a number of the companies have said we don't expect to make a profit. And I think GSAK has said any profit we do make will be put into pandemic preparedness in future. Um, and again, I think this is for, for multiple reasons and different companies will have different reasons. One, it is the right thing to do. And two, the companies are accused of price gouging when there isn't a crisis. Can you imagine what the accusations will be if there is a crisis? And thirdly, you know, more money than usual from public the public purse has gone in, um, and there may well be um, there may well be provisions in funding agreements that limit the sort of prices that can be charged. But I don't think they're going to be um, profiting hugely from uh, bringing out a vaccine or uh, therapeutic. That is not sustainable as a, a way of doing business in future. Resources are finite and they have to be directed to what is regarded by the company as the projects that are most likely to have a successful outcome in terms of getting a product to market and making an amount of money from it. I, I think what has changed during COVID is they are taking greater risks on products not getting to market or they are spending uh, resource on 
projects that have less chance of success in commercial terms and uh, scientific terms. And I just don't think that will be particularly sustainable long term. We've looked at how cooperation has suddenly emerged in an otherwise highly competitive, highly regulated global industry. It's been quite the transformation of operating procedure and of fundamental purpose. Now, this is interesting in itself, and I hope you've learned something useful. But I was also interested in whether it had happened in more normal times. And was there a pattern in how it worked or a common thread of what the impact was? Jonathan Baker is lecturer in international business strategy and entrepreneurship at Auckland University of Technology. And he's researched what he calls market shaping. We'll come to that in a moment and how it can come about when competitors cooperate. He's got examples he can tell us about of companies coming together to cooperate where they would usually compete and the role that crisis can play in that phenomenon. A bunch of small uh, boutique wineries here in New Zealand back in 2001 wanted to gain acceptance for the aluminium screw cap as um, a closure on premium wine. And at the time, of course, the screw cap was seen as something that you would only put on jug wine or on poor quality wine. And uh, so these wineries set about to try and uh, essentially shape all sorts of expectations and behaviours around the world in these different markets so that the sommeliers and the restaurateurs, people in the wine trade, supermarket buyers and so forth, all of these people would would accept the fact that an aluminium screw cap was an acceptable closure on on a premium bottle of wine. It was a crisis that drove that degree of cooperation between them. Um, They reported to me that they are essentially being uh, severely let down by the quality of the cork that was coming out of Portugal as as demand for cork went up around the world and the Portuguese cork industry just couldn't keep up with producing high-quality cork at the rate that was required. And and they insisted to me, well, you know, we're all the way down at the bottom of the world, so we're hardly going to get the premium cork. So they were, they were very frustrated by that. And a number of, um, of these boutique wineries had suffered massive, um, almost, almost catastrophic financial losses as a result. So I think, I think a crisis is often a, a, a great way to force managers to think differently about, about what it is that they expect and, and what it, what their role is and how can they create more resilience for themselves and maybe maybe resilience for their organization and means that 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 partnering with someone else is 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 a good approach so i think i think typically a crisis actually is 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 quite an effective way to drive some fresh thinking this coming together of competitors that Jonathan describes can change the very nature of an area of life or business he calls that market shaping and he explained what that means market shaping basically is when you either create a whole new market and that often happens around some sort of new technology but market shaping can also be um, and this i find a little bit more interesting um, is when you improve the current market and of course from a competitive position improving the current market Uh, is not really something that many firms like to do because improving the current market improves the market not just for you, but also for your competitors. 
So it can be quite anti-intuitive for a lot of um, senior managers to consider setting about to try and improve sort of the market system within which they operate because you're delivering wins to your competitors as well. So in the global health sector, um, we've actually seen several organizations formally adopt a market shaping policy um, or market shaping strategies. The Global Fund, which is a, an NGO based in Switzerland, um, has done a great job of uh, overcoming what was a historic issue of, of trying to incentivize pharmaceutical companies to be producing really basic medicines that maybe aren't as profitable as some new treatment for baldness, say, in the Western world. And so the Global Fund um, uh, set about to try and try and incentivize the manufacturing and the distribution of basic medicines to the developing world. And so they have worked really well at, at sort of impacting the different layers, if you like, within the market. So making sure that not only um, uh, their, their funders, but also the pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, and also distributors of, of basic medicines are working together towards sharing this common goal of getting these basic medicines to those people that need them. So this market shaping, changing the regulatory, competitive or demand landscape through coordinated action might be the consequence of greater cooperation between companies. But how does that cooperation come about in the first place? There was a time when massive conglomerates did everything in-house and they were proud of their self-reliance. But cooperation between companies was a natural consequence of a breakdown in recent decades of that way of doing business, says Jonathan. Cooperative strategies between organisations uh, have, have become a real cornerstone in a lot of businesses, especially in the B2B area. Uh, and that, that started occurring, you know, back in the 90s, various researchers started to notice, notice this explosion in, um, in alliances and uh, cooperative networks and so forth. What often drives firms together, I think, is, is, is this need to be, uh, to, to, to essentially realise economies of scale that maybe they can't um, under normal circumstances. And we saw this happening in the automotive sector, you know, starting probably back in the 80s. And that's why we've now got companies like um, Fiat Chrysler and so forth, because these smaller companies are, are, are trying to realise the same economies of scale that a Toyota or a, or a Volkswagen um, group can, can realise in real time. This chimes with what David Rosenberg has seen, companies getting closer to one another because they realised they can't do everything themselves. And first, with what Nicole has found from talking to businesses about how their attitude to collaboration is changing. People have, perhaps unsurprisingly, been very positive about the level of collaboration and the role it's going to play in, in the future. Of, of all the companies we, we spoke to, I think 90% of those believe that greater collaboration between organisations would have a positive impact on the life sciences industry going forward. Um, and I think that I mean, that, that reflects the, the general trend in any event, but um, I think people have seen, seen the or hoping to see the power of, of the collaboration. There is, has been for the last 20, 25 years an increasing realisation that actually no one company has the skill set, the knowledge set, the IP set um, that is necessary for particularly more complicated products like bio biologicals and vaccines. Um, and 
I think it's that realization that has led to much more collaboration and to much more open innovation. I mean, I think largely open innovation is a mindset. It, it is the mindset that says uh, we can't do closed innovation where we do everything from the test tube to the patient on our own. We therefore have to collaborate with others who have skill sets, knowledge sets, data sets, whatever they may, may be that we don't have. And we are more open to collaborating and therefore compromising um, than we used to be simply because in many, many cases now it is necessary. I see it more and more as without collaboration, we will not get products to market. Companies that probably thought they would never work with another company have realized they can do and will do so in the future. Cooperation then has evolved in recent decades and has become a powerful force shaping entire markets. Life sciences companies already had the culture, the mechanisms and the will to cooperate, but have stretched it further than ever in the coronavirus crisis. Nobody expects this unprecedented scale of cooperation to become the norm, and competition regulators would be alarmed if it did. But this way of working has been tested in the fire of a crisis and, so far, been found to be effective. It will be harder than ever for companies to argue in the future that the best way to proceed is to go it alone. And that's quite a legacy. Thanks for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Counsel podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting team at pinsentmasons.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pinsent Masons, the international professional services firm with law at its core.